You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I told the folks uh, during the uh, earlier service that it is a, a privilege for me to be here. Um, normally, I don't get invited back to places that I've spoken to previously. <laughs> So it's always a thrill when, when you get invited back. That's a, that's a good thing. But I am uh, particularly thankful for this church and for what I have been able to, to just watch over the years as God has uh, brought new folks and expanded the life and the work of this congregation and given you all an incredibly nice place to gather in. Uh, this wasn't true of us, I think, Jim, when we started. It was a little... Less than, than this, for sure. Uh, we were out in a, in a farm field in some building there for, for a while. But uh, anyway, just a, a privilege to be here. And I'm always uh, very conscious of the fact that uh, when I'm invited to uh, participate in a Sunday worship service and to bring um, the Word of God to us, that that's, a, that's a privilege, and it's one that I... I take very seriously. Um, The Puritans used to call this podium uh, the sacred desk. I love that description because it uh, it gives weight to the the responsibility and the privilege. And ultimately, uh, your elders and Brad, as your pastor, have trusted me to be with you this morning and open up God's word. And I pray that uh, this time together will be encouraging to you and beneficial. Uh, We're told in uh, the book of Hebrews that the Word of God is uh, quick and it's powerful and it it penetrates uh, down into the very depths of who we are and it divulges to us, it, uh, it opens up to us the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It, uh, it reveals our motives and uh, Sometimes needs to censure those motives and at other times uh, to encourage and, uh, and develop those motives. But I'd like to pray for us uh, just again real quickly, if I could, as we open God's word together. Father, we, uh, we bow before you. We are uh, absolutely dependent on you doing something that we can't manufacture. We can't in any way uh, produce We are asking you by your Holy Spirit to allow this interaction with your word to to be uh, transformative in our lives, to be restorative, to encourage us, to inform us, to uh, convict us, to, uh, to move us, Father, to be men and women who, who love you more deeply and who pursue you more wholeheartedly. And so we bring this time to you, and we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, the, the title for my time with you this morning, as uh, you can see on the screen there, is uh, Good Grief. And my sense is that uh, <clears throat> this passage that we're going to read and reflect on 
uh, is a passage that uh, casts God's grief in a, uh, in a light that can be absolutely good for us. Uh, we're going to talk more about this, but uh, the way we live and the way we uh, interact with life and people and respond to circumstances, um, when we do that in a way that doesn't honor God or please Him or that uh, violates uh, His design and His will and His purpose, uh, we're going to read that uh, that brings grief to God's heart. He feels deeply in, 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 a, in, a, in a very uh, real and substantive way uh, the implications of our not trusting him and not being willing to, to live in dependence upon him and in response to his instructions and commands. So the, the passage that uh, we're going to focus our attention on this morning comes from Genesis chapter 6. And it's on the screen there. <clears throat> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination and intention of all human thinking was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved at heart. That's a... Uh, a profound description of God's person and uh, of uh, how what we're about to describe affected him. It really affects God when we don't trust him and when we don't pursue him and uh, seek to honor and please him. I want to introduce you to three uh, people, first of all, who are some of my favorite folks to read about and study uh, the biographies of and, and to reflect on the lives of. Um, and these men were all men that uh, we recognize as outstanding Christians. And yet they, uh, they each, in their own way, struggled with the reality that uh, even though they had become Christians and had given their lives to Christ, uh, there was still this alien nature in them that was constantly uh, beckoning them to, uh, to drift from God's authority and from his plan and purpose, to rebel against that, to become uh, self-indulgent, to become independent, uh, to become a man or a woman who uh, wanted to be uh, in charge of their own life and less and less responsive to God's intentions and design and will. And the first of these uh, gentlemen is uh, John Owen. John Owen was a, uh, a Puritan pastor in England. He was uh, the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. He was also a man who uh, wrote extensively and was very influential. One of his, uh, one of his good friends was uh, John Bunyan. And you may remember the story of John Bunyan and his uh, having written a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan was a, uh, a dissenter. He didn't follow the rules of the Church of England at the time. And he conducted worship services as a pastor that were outside, legally outside of the parameters accepted by the Anglican Church. And so he was put in jail 
spent almost 13 years in prison. And during those 13 years, uh, he taught himself how to read and write. And he only had one book, and it was a Bible. And he so saturated his mind with that book that he ended up writing uh, this book, Pilgrim's Progress. And it became, next to the Bible, the most uh, published book uh, on the Christian life ever. And there was a time in England when virtually every home in England had a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, a man who had a profound influence. And uh, John Owen was his good friend. And John Owen had, uh, had uh, you know, relationships with people in high places. And yet, do what he could, he could not get uh, John Bunyan released from prison. And it's a fascinating thing to see that God was even sovereign in that because had Bunyan been released, he would have never written Pilgrim's Progress and the world would be the poorer for it. And so uh, this John Owen, was uh, uh, he was a, uh, a cardiologist of the soul. He was a man who had profound insight into human nature. Uh, some folks call him the John Calvin of England. He was just that kind of a man. And uh, he found himself in, in a book called uh, The Mortification of Sin, which is just a title meaning uh, how do we kill this, this, this alien influence in us that remains even as Christians to taunt us and to discourage us and undermine what God is about in our lives. How do we put that to death? How do we deal with that? And so he wrote this book that's become a classic. And uh, in the book, he was, uh, he was reflecting on Peter. And if you, uh, if you remember the story of Peter, um, Peter was a man of great intentions. He was a man that uh, uh, wanted to, to do things for Christ and, and was very confident that he, he could do the things that he wanted to do. And the scene that uh, Owen is particularly focused in on is the upper room, the, the meal that the disciples had where they had the first uh, meal together that became what we celebrate this morning as the Lord's Supper. And uh, in that context, in the upper room, uh, Jesus had, uh, had indicated that he would be betrayed by his most intimate friends, his, his disciples, his followers. And as soon as that was announced to the group, Peter said, hey, you know, I, I would never do that. I'm going to be here for you, Jesus. You can count on me. Uh, these other guys, to a person they may all, you know, flee and uh, abandon you. But I'm going to be there. I'm going I'm to be the one that uh, is, is there for you. And so he asserts his, his confidence and within a couple of hours, they've moved now to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And uh, Jesus has taken his disciples there and he is praying in that, in that majestic prayer of, of devotion to God's will. And he asked his disciples something very simply. Um, would you just mind staying awake and, uh, and praying and, and supporting me? I'd ask the same thing of you this morning. <laughs> but Jesus asked that and uh, uh, went off a little ways from them and just 
poured out his heart before the Lord, came back, and he saw that all of them were just sleeping, just had fallen asleep. And that happens three times. And as, as John Owen reflects on this, uh, this desire of, of Peter to, uh, to intentionally follow Christ, and he makes all these good resolves and makes all these resolutions, and then so quickly fails to be able to carry through with them, uh, this is what Owen says. I, I love this quote. Even the best of men, being left to themselves, will quickly appear to be less than men, to be nothing. All our own strength is weakness, and all our wisdom is folly. And indeed, it would be an amazing thing to consider that Peter should make so high a promise and immediately be so careless and remiss in the pursuit of it. But, in other words, we're amazed that Peter would be so confident one moment, the next moment, fail miserably. And Owen says, but uh, why doesn't that uh, really amaze us? <laughs> because <clears throat> we find the root of the same treachery abiding and working in our own hearts. And we do see the fruit of it brought forth every day, the most noble engagements unto obedience, quickly ending in deplorable negligence. That's, uh, that's my story. I don't know if it's yours. I suspect so. The, uh, just the reality of our nature and the propensity of our nature to uh, make... Uh, determinations and to be intentional about things and, and not be able to carry through so often in those things that we may feel quite strongly about and quite uh, convinced and motivated and, and convicted should be a part of our lives. Another gentleman is John Newton. Uh, John Newton was uh, uh, called by uh, a contemporary pastor, John uh, who am I think? Piper. John Piper said that John Newton was the healthiest Christian alive in the 1700s. Um, he was an amazing man. Most of us know uh, that he wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, but the, the story of John Newton is a, is a wonderful story of, uh, of God changing a man who was really a, a not a very nice person. Uh, when he was 11 years old, he went to sea with his dad, who was a sailor, and that introduced him into a, uh, a, a pattern uh, for the, the next uh, couple, point maybe 20 years, of involving himself in the slave trade and uh, ultimately captaining slave ships and going to, uh, to Africa and capturing Africans and taking them to British ports and selling them into slavery. Just a despicable um, vocation, obviously, and a, a man who was corrupted in all kinds of ways. But he was uh, in a ship, uh, and uh, in the midst of his, uh, of his days as a slave trader, and for some reason, uh, he was reading uh, a Christian classic by Thomas Akempis, uh, The Imitation of Christ. And... Uh, as he read, he was being sensitized to 
the realities of the life that God offered men. And right in the midst of reading this book, there was this horrific storm that just came up and uh, was very life-threatening. And Newton felt like he was going to die at sea. And as a result of that awareness, he ended up uh, giving his life to Christ. And over the next few years, uh, withdrew from this profession that had characterized him for so many years. Uh, he was able to be ordained in the uh, Anglican Church as a, uh, as a pastor and uh, began to, uh, to serve Christ in very uh, distinct ways. Uh, the last 16 years of his life he spent in London as, as the pastor of a church there and became very close friends with William Wilberforce, the parliamentarian. And because of his unique experience uh, as a boy and as a man growing up, uh, he joined with Wilberforce and, and engaged in a crusade to, uh, to rid the British Empire of the slave trade. But as he reflected on his life, uh, he says that, uh, that he genuinely believed, this is quoting him, that he was the worst sinner he knew. I don't know anybody else that's worse than I am. Uh, he said, uh, my heart is like a country but half subdued, and mutinies and insurrections are daily happening. My heart is half subdued, and I'm constantly struggling with, uh, with mutinies um, and insurrections in my heart against the king who is in residence, the Lord Jesus um, he was on his deathbed uh, in London, and uh, he had been spending time with a fellow named William Jay, who was a pastor and became a quite well-known uh, pastor. But this was the last time that they had met, that, that they met before um, uh, Newton died. And William Jay, in a little journal that he kept, uh, wrote a quote that he heard that afternoon, that last time he spent time with John Newton. And the quote was, as you see there, uh, although my memory is failing, I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. The third person that I, I'll just uh, mention who uh, struggled as, as well as these other men did and as we do with that, that presence within us of a nature that beckons us to indulge it rather than to carry out the intentions of our heart to honor and please Christ. Um, Oswald Chambers was a, uh, a young Scottish man. Uh, he became a Christian and uh, ended up uh, teaching in a theological college in Scotland. And we have a, a book from him, uh, My Utmost for His Highest. It's one of the most uh, widely used uh, daily devotionals available. About 13 million copies have been sold of that book. And millions of Christians throughout the world and since 1927 when it was published have, uh, have journeyed the Christian life with Oswald Chambers. And yet Chambers... Uh, was a man who recognized his own sinfulness. Uh, he'd been a Christian for about 15 years and was teaching in this theological college. Uh, everyone around him 
thought that he was uh, just a, a winsome, devoted, uh, effective Christian, uh, very articulate. But he said in the context of, of those years, I had no conscious communion with him, that is with Christ. The Bible was the dullest, most uninteresting book in existence. And the sense of depravity, the vileness and bad motiveness of my nature was terrific. He was struggling with what we've been describing. He goes on to say in his diary, I was getting very desperate. I knew no one who had what I wanted. In fact, I did not know what I did want. But I knew that if what I had was all the Christianity there was, the thing was a fraud. He was struggling with uh, just the reality of that nature. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is look at the book of Genesis and pick out some highlights that, uh, that underscore two themes. One is uh, what I call the, the devolution of human nature. And in that uh, we see and we will see that we go from the, the Garden of Eden where God says in Genesis 1.31, everything that I've created, the physical world, the, the world of plants and animals, the world of human beings, that's very good. And the description there in the first two chapters of Genesis is of, of God's uh, offer and presence as man walked with God in the cool of the evening and, and had a, uh, a relationship with him that was all that, uh, that one could imagine. Um, and yet, that, uh, that state of everything being very good began to dismantle and un unravel uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, of course, Adam and Eve introduced into human life uh, separation from God and death and, and uh, something died within us, our capacity to, to fully pursue God and love Him and serve Him. And this other nature this, uh, this alien nature began to exert its influence over the heart of man. And uh, it's seen in a number of things as you, as you study these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, the first thing we run into is uh, Cain's murder of his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And that's a, that's a particularly fascinating passage because the, uh, the description of that uh, scene is one of... Cain premeditatively uh, coming up with a plan to, uh, to kill his brother. It wasn't a spontaneous thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, he, he says to his brother, Hey, um, why don't you and I go out into this field? Uh, so he invites Abel to go with him. And we know the result of that was that he ended Abel's life. So you have murder for the first time. And murder of a, uh, of a sort where it's uh, the indication of the text is it was premeditated and thought through and there was a plan. He was so intent on, uh, on eliminating uh, this brother that he was jealous of and, uh, and found um, problematic in having him around. 
And then we run into a, a fellow in, in Genesis chapter 4 who uh, we're told uh, had uh, two wives. So we've gone from the creation of Adam and Eve and, uh, and the design of God for one man and one woman to share life together as husband and wife. And now we, we read in verse 19 that uh, a man takes two wives. And, uh, and we see the design and the plan of God, his purpose for human relationships beginning to deteriorate. Um, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, as that chapter begins, we have a, a fascinating passage about uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And how, uh, uh, I'll just read verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took wives of all that they desired and chose. And so now you have just the proliferation of this perversion of God's design for marriage. Uh, there are about five different ways that people have interpreted this passage um, from what I think is pretty bizarre, uh, that angels <laughs> had intimate relationships with human women and produced this, this, uh, these giants that roamed the land. Um, but I think that in the context, uh, the book of Genesis has just given us a case study. This is what's happening as you have this devolution, this degeneration of human nature. Um, and then when we get to chapter 6, verse 5, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the, in the earth and that every imagination and intention of all human thinking was only evil continually. You have a description of, of total, um, exhaustive corruption of human nature. So now it's officially and formally in opposition to God at every turn. There's something that uh, is corrupting and defiling about our nature. And at every turn, we find ourselves challenged to give in to that, that lower uh, destructive urge. But the, the story doesn't end there. As you go into the rest of uh, the first 11 chapters, it ends with the Tower of Babel. And uh, even after the flood, uh, man is still characterized by this uh, self-centeredness. He wants to build something for his own credit. So you see in these first 11 chapters a, uh, a description of how things begin to unravel and fall apart in terms of human nature. But fortunately, that's not the whole story. The other half of the story is just the goodness of God, even in the face of that, to, uh, to draw men and women to himself, to beckon them, to engage with him and pursue him with their whole hearts. And that's what I, what I described as uh, good grief. God was, uh, was profoundly and deeply and really hurt uh, by man's rebellion, by having to stand by and watch this, this descent of human nature. It brought, brought him great grief. So much so that, uh, as you remember, the text says, um, God regretted that he had made man. Now, I don't think that that, uh, that phrase is uh, God up in heaven saying, uh, oops, 
you know, I did something here that uh, I made a mistake. It didn't turn out right. It backfired on me. It, uh, uh, it was a poor, a poor choice. God isn't, uh, isn't saying that at all. He is using the language of uh, what people experience when someone they love deeply dies. Uh, they regret the absence of that person. They, they find themselves grieving uh, the fact that, uh, that that person that they knew and loved and shared life with is not here. And it's that language of grief that is used in this book of Hebrew, in this book of Genesis to describe God as regretting that that uh, that person that I created and wanted so to be able to to enjoy and they enjoy me. Something's happened that's preventing that and is is perverting that uh, that desire on God's part, and it's deeply painful to Him. To observe that and feel that and experience that. And so the, uh, the good grief, though, is that as God is grieved, he also is showing his heart to his people. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, we have the first glimpse of the fact that God is about restoring what has been lost and broken in man's rebellion. And we see a picture there in Genesis 3.15 of a... Uh, of a descendant of Eve that is going to uh, experience a, uh, a wound on his heel, a non-life-threatening wound, but that descendant is going to crush the head of the enemy of Satan. And it's a picture, ultimately, of, of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and yet that death was an absolute and total and resounding victory as he defeated Satan. So you see a little glimmer of that in Genesis 3.15. And then uh, I love this passage in Genesis 4 where God comes to Cain. And uh, this is before he kills Abel. He's made a plan. He's determined this is what he, what he is going to do. And God comes to him and warns him about the gravity of what he's thinking. God comes to him and convicts him of uh, what he's anticipating. And you see the heart of God there to, to warn and say, don't do that. Don't give yourself to that thing that you feel that you need to do or desire to do. And so we see the heart of God uh, warning and beckoning. Um, and then uh, in Genesis 4, there's a description of, uh, of Eve giving birth to Seth. And Seth is the one who, in, in essence, takes Abel's place and becomes a man who, uh, who pursues God. And we're told in uh, Genesis chapter 4 that men began to worship God again, uh, who were descended from Seth. And then you have uh, they had this fascinating person, Enoch, in Genesis 5. And he, uh, he walks with God, the text says, for 130 years. For 130 years, he lived daily in intimacy with and in obedience to God. And uh, the result was, and the book of Hebrews describes this uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. God just, uh, he didn't have to die physically. God just took him to heaven. 
And, and Hebrews describes that. But this man was a man who was an example of someone who took God seriously and pursued God, pursued God wholeheartedly. And then uh, we have that passage again in Genesis chapter 6 that we've read where we, we see God's heart so affected. And yet uh, a heart that wants to continue to pursue us. And he does that in, in Noah's case. Genesis tells us Noah found favor in God's eyes. And later we see Noah uh, entering into a covenant with God and worshiping God. Um, so the, the, the two themes are just this descent in terms of the corruption of our nature. And yet the, uh, the prevailing heart of God to, to rescue and restore and... Uh, bring to completion what he started and what was so uh, broken by man's rebellion. Uh, this next uh, picture, just uh, by way of leading us to some application here, is uh, one of my favorite uh, theologians and, and Bible uh, teachers, John Piper. And Piper said uh, that the Christian is never dealing with a, a mere body of facts to be clarified. When we read in Genesis 1 through 11 of this descent of the human heart into complete depravity, and we, when we read of God's heart to continue to invite and beckon and encourage men and women to embrace Him and follow Him and pursue Him, uh, that's just not a lot of facts to be understood. Obviously, that's, that's very foundational. But I, I tell you what I've just told you, not to just clarify for you that we've got a sin nature and it's, it's plunging us into uh, alienation from our Creator and not just to, to describe God's heart for us and how broken His heart is when we don't pursue Him. But Piper goes on to say that uh, all of this information is a constellation of glories to be treasured. This book is a, uh, a treasure trove of insights into God's glory. That as we treasure those, it transforms our lives. And I want to look at just two things as we prepare for the table and for an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, the first is that our sin, our rebellion, our propensity to be self-absorbed and independent and self-sufficient, all those things that characterize this, this nature that, uh, that was so corrupted, that that can never eclipse the heart of God we saw to call men and women to himself. As you come to this table and as you receive by faith these elements as, uh, as reminding you of, of substantive truths, uh, your own sinfulness, it also reminds you of, of God's love and provision. And the, uh, the reality is that uh, God's gracious heart for us that is so grieved by our distancing ourselves from Him and pursuing our own agendas. God's heart is, uh, is never eclipsed. It's never sabotaged or set aside or 
abandoned by how we behave. I love this definition of the gospel. It's, uh, I just started hearing this really several years ago, but it, uh, it's gripped me. The gospel is uh, the reality that I am more depraved than I can ever imagine. I have no way of knowing fully and thoroughly and completely how offensive I am to a holy God. No way I can know that. But, but, even in the face of all of that, I'm more loved than I could ever hope to be. And that's what this table brings us to celebrate, that the, the goodness and love and grace and forgiveness of God always trumps uh, this nature that we struggle with and give into so often. So it's a, it's a treasure to have a God who has so provided for us in the person of his son that uh, our own choices and behaviors and attitudes and responses to people in life never set that aside or uh, finally overthrow and defeat that. Every time you come to this table, every time you come into God's presence, you come into the presence of a, of a father who loves and prizes and values and desires you. And that can, can never be eclipsed by what you bring when you come, which is always brokenness and imperfection and undeservedness. Uh, the second thing that uh, is just a, a main theme for this morning. It's just understanding that our rebellion and our sin affects God's heart. Um, and that's a, that's a motive. We, we don't want to hurt people we really love and, the, and people we know love us. And so the more we can be in touch with how much God loves us and how our behavior affects Him, and how particularly that behavior that doesn't honor him grieves him. Um, there's motive there to pursue God in a wholehearted way. Just a couple of uh, closing illustrations, then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, Thomas Chalmers was a, uh, a pastor, and he preached a sermon uh, entitled The Explosive Power of a New Affection. It's a very famous sermon. You can go online and Google it and read the whole thing. It's, it's, it's really a profound uh, understanding of human nature and the Christian life. But he said the heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered. If our heart's desire is for an ultimate object that is dishonoring to God, displeasing to Him, uh, that can be conquered. But, he says... It's a desire, but a desire to have some object is unconquerable. We always have to have an object for our affection. And his thesis is, and I, I think this is so helpful, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection that's inferior, that is uh, not helpful and not healthy and that doesn't honor God, the only way to dispossess our heart of that is to be possessed by a, a superior affection.
And so as we fall in love with Christ, it's in the process of that that the grip of these inferior affections begins to loosen and release its, its paralyzing hold on our lives. And just uh, one more fellow, John Dunn was an English poet and uh, became a pastor in, in London and had a fascinating uh, experience because right when he came to London, the first of three waves of the bubonic plague was sweeping through London and thousands and thousands of people were dying, his parishioners, his neighbors, those in his community. Uh, in one, I think it was the second wave of the bubonic plague, 10,000 people in London itself died. And most everyone was abandoning the city. John Dunn was called to be the pastor of the largest church in London. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here with my people. And so he stayed. And there's a whole story to that. But uh, here's what Dunn said. Um, Batter my heart, three-person God. For you as yet but knock and breathe and shine and seek to mend. In other words, God, you've been pretty gentle with me. You've been, you've been sort of sensitizing me and tugging at my heart, but it's all been kind of gentle. And then uh, because Dunn was such a, a passionate uh, poet, uh, he goes on to say that I may rise and stand overthrow me and bend your force to break and blow and burn and make me new. Take me to you. Imprison me. For except you enthrall me, never shall I be free. Never nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. And that's the, uh, the, the heart of this table. Is another opportunity to come and to acknowledge that uh, we have not honored and pleased God in particular ways. Just to be honest and transparent with Him, we're not telling Him anything He doesn't already know, <laughs> but to verbalize in His presence and particularize those things that you're aware of and convicted of that haven't honored Him. But you come knowing that these elements also represent the fact that, uh, that God... Uh, in the person of his son, suspended himself between heaven and earth and died so that you might be forgiven and accepted by a holy God and treasured and desired and loved by him. And that love he has for you uh, is, is expressed in these elements and is never eclipsed by the brokenness that you bring to this table and acknowledge before him. So I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we'll celebrate together as we continue our worship and uh, benefit from this wonderful meal that God has provided as a, as a routine reminder of both our depravity and his love. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we just come before you now and thank you that there are opportunities like this morning to be honest with you, to be real before you. But we come, Father, in that honesty and that reality, so grateful and so thankful that uh, the larger reality is that 
because of Christ and because of our trust in Him, we've been adopted into your family and constituted your sons and daughters. You've written us into your will. We're going to spend... Heaven is going to be an eternity of enjoyment that was, was forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for a chance just to be reminded that, that we're more corrupted than we could imagine and more loved than we could ever hope to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite elders and deacons who are going to help serve to, to come forward. Those of you who um, have a, we talked with earlier to serve. So thank you so much for Ricky Mill for sharing the word to, for us this morning and just bringing us right to the table. Um, same thing as in first service. And I, I said this in first service and I'll say it again. It, it is so evident how much he loves this church. And I think it's, he loves the Lord and has definitely has investment in this church. So the fruit that you and I receive from the, the ministry of this church uh, comes from many people who have made investments before us, um, even, and Ricky Mill is one of them. And we, we, uh, we feel loved by him every time he's here. And I want him to know that Grace Community Church truly loves him. And um, said that first service, and I'm happy to say it again because I believe, I believe it with all of my heart. I'm very grateful for his ministry. Uh, he's led us straight to the table this morning in preaching the gospel. So you've heard the gospel proclaimed, you've heard it with your ears, and now we get to participate in the Lord's Supper and you get to see the gospel uh, proclaimed. So it is, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns uh, through this supper, through this meal. And that's what we're doing. We are visually uh, getting to experience the gospel as we take the bread that uh, represents the body of our Lord that was given for us. And then we, we drink from the cup, the juice that you drink. We are reminded of the blood of Christ that was poured out for us. So this is a visual proclamation of the gospel. And this is for the benefit of the church, that as we do this together, as Christians, we are nourished. We are reminded of the gospel that we believe and that we rest in. And it's also a proclamation, a proclamation for those who have yet to believe that you get to see the gospel as well as hear it this morning. Um, so we're going to pass out the elements to you in a, in, a, in a minute. And for those in here who may not have trusted Christ and believe in him as your savior yet, then I ask that you just let the elements pass by, but yet that you watch and that you see uh, this, this presentation of the gospel um, through, through, through the elements as we partake them and they sustain us and they nourish us. And um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 as well to examine our hearts, to take time to examine your hearts before you participate in this meal. And we want to do just that together, to take a moment to examine our hearts. Uh, because Jesus' body was given for us, his blood was poured out for us so that, that there may not be a separation between us and God. And what separates us from God is our sin. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus he was the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, so that there may be no separation between you and God. But yet, sometimes we find that hard to believe, and, and we, we, we know the sin that's in our hearts, and we have to remind ourselves of the gospel that, no, the sin no longer separates from me from God. Um, so let's take a moment, and let's release, and whatever it is that may be between you and the Lord, that you remind yourself of the truth that he has paid for it, and that he has forgiven you for that. And so let's take this moment to confess our sin uh, before we uh, partake of this meal together.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.